Happy New Year. Welcome to Dreamful Podcast, Bedtime Stories for Slumber. I would like to start off this episode by thanking our newest Patreon supporters, Laura S. and Alice L. Thank you both so much, and I hope you have the sweetest of dreams. It's the start of a new year, and that means it's time for a listener survey. If you'd like to take part in the survey, you can answer seven quick questions to help me better understand my listeners and give story suggestions. Please visit dreamfulstories.com survey. All participants will be eligible for a drawing for a $25 Amazon gift card. I will draw a survey winner on February 1st, 2022. With how busy the holidays can be, it is really difficult to take time out for that all-important self-care. It's because of this that I'm so glad to have our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a simple and convenient way to match up with a licensed professional therapist. Take a quick online quiz to assess which therapist would be the best fit and connect to them in under 48 hours in a safe and private online environment. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And if your counselor isn't a perfect fit for you, that's not a problem because BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Best of all, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. Start living a happier life today. As a listener of Dreamfall, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com dreamfall. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, help spelled H-E-L-P dot com slash dreamfall. For this episode, I couldn't help but ring in the new year with this roaring 20s classic, The Great Gatsby. This story has been adapted to exclude any explicit content, but the story still contains themes of alcohol and violence. So if any of that bothers you, maybe skip this week's, because I have a fantastic episode for younger listeners coming up next time. So, snuggle up in your blankets and have sweet dreams. gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. I understood that he meant a great deal more than that. Conduct may be founded on the hard rock or the wet marshes, but after a certain point, I don't care what it's founded on. When I came back from the East last autumn, I wanted no more riotous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. Only Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book, was exempt from my reaction. Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have an unaffected scorn, Gatsby turned out all right in the end. It is what preyed on Gatsby, what foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams, that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. My family, the Caraway clan, have been well-to-do people in a middle western city since my grandfather's brother started his wholesale hardware business. I graduated from New Haven in 1915, and a little later, 
I participated in that delayed Teutonic migration, known as the Great War. It was a matter of chance that I should have rented a house in one of the strangest communities in North America. Twenty miles from New York City, a pair of enormous eggs, separated only by a courtesy bay, jut out into the great wet barnyard of Long Island Sound. I lived at West Egg, the less fashionable of the two. My own small eyesore of a house was squeezed between two huge places. The one on my right was a colossal imitation of some hotel de ville in Normandy, with a marble swimming pool. It was Gatsby's mansion. I had the consoling proximity of millionaires, for eighty dollars a month. The history of the summer really begins on the evening I drove over to have dinner with two old friends whom I scarcely knew at all, the Tom Buchanans. Daisy was my second cousin once removed, and I'd known Tom in college. He had played football at New Haven, and his family were enormously wealthy. Now he was a sturdy, straw-haired man, of thirty, with a rather hard mouth and a supercilious manner. Now, don't think my opinion is final," he seemed to say. "Just because I'm stronger and more of a man than you are." At his elaborate house, on an enormous couch, two young women in white dresses were fluttering. I told Cousin Daisy how desolate Chicago was without her. All the cars have the left rear wheel painted black as a mourning wreath. She laughed, and murmured that the other girl was Jordan Baker, the golfer. "You live in West Egg," Miss Baker remarked contemptuously to me. "You must know Gatsby." "Gatsby?" demanded Daisy. "What Gatsby?" Before I could reply. Dinner was announced, and Tom Buchanan compelled me from the room as though he were moving a checker to another square. Out onto a rosy-colored porch opened toward the sunset, where four candles flickered on the table. Daisy snapped out candles. The telephone rang inside, and the butler came and murmured something close to Tom's ear. Whereupon Tom frowned, pushed back his chair. And without a word, went inside. As if his absence quickened something within her, Daisy suddenly threw her napkin on the table, and went into the house. Miss Baker and I exchanged a short glance. She said hesitantly, "Tom's got some woman in New York." Then, with a flutter of a dress and the crunch of leather boots, Tom and Daisy were back at the table. I asked her some sedative questions about her little girl. She looked at me absently. Listen, Nick. I hope she'll be a fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in this world—a beautiful little fool. And I know. I've been everywhere and seen everything and done everything. As I left that night, Daisy asked if I didn't have a girl out west. Their interest rather touched me, and made them less remotely rich. Nevertheless, I was confused and a little disgusted as I drove away. When I reached my estate at West Egg, I saw that I was not alone. Fifty feet away, Mr. Gatsby himself had come out to determine what share was his of our local heavens. When I looked once more for Gatsby, he had vanished, and I was alone again in the unquiet darkness. About halfway between West Egg and New York, there's a valley of ashes—a fantastic farm where ashes grow 
like wheat into ridges and hills and grotesque gardens. I went up to New York with Tom on the train one afternoon, and when we stopped by the ash heaps, he jumped to his feet and taking hold of my elbow, literally forced me from the car. We're getting off, he insisted. I want you to meet my girl. I followed him over a low whitewash fence to a garage. Repairs, George B. Wilson, cars bought and sold. And I followed Tom inside. The proprietor himself appeared in the door, a blonde, spiritless man, anemic and faintly handsome. Hello, Wilson, old man, said Tom. How's business? I can't complain, answered Wilson unconvincingly. Then I heard footsteps on a stair, and in a moment, the thickish figure of a woman smiled slowly, and walking through her husband as if he were a ghost, shook hands with Tom, looking him flush in the eye. Then she wet her lips, and without turning around spoke to her husband in a soft, coarse voice. Get some chairs, why don't you, so somebody can sit down. Wilson hurried toward the little office. His wife moved close to Tom. I want to see you, Myrtle, said Tom intently. Get on the next train. She nodded and moved away from him, just as George Wilson emerged with two chairs from his office door. So, we waited for her down the road and out of sight, and Tom Buchanan and his girl and I went up together to New York. We're not quite together, for Mrs. Wilson sat discreetly in another car. Our cab stopped at one slice in a long white cake of apartment houses, where Mrs. Wilson gathered up her dog and went haughtily in. After the first drink, company commenced to arrive at the apartment door. There was McKee, the photographer, and Myrtle's sister, Catherine, who sat down beside me on the couch. Do you live down on Long Island too? She inquired. I live at West Egg. Really? I was down there at a party about a month ago, at a man named Gatsby. They say he's a nephew of Kaiser Wilhelm's. Catherine looked at Myrtle and then at Tom, leaned close to me, and whispered in my ear. Neither of them can stand the person they're married to. If I was them, I'd get a divorce and get married to each other right away. A bottle of whiskey, a second one, was now in constant demand by all present. I wanted to get out, but each time I tried to go, I became entangled in some wild strident argument which pulled me back, as if with ropes into my chair. Sometime toward midnight, Tom Buchanan and Mrs. Wilson stood face to face, discussing in impassioned voices whether Mrs. Wilson had any right to mention Daisy's name. Daisy, 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 shouted Mrs. Wilson. I'll say it whenever I want to. Daisy, day, making a short, deft movement. Tom Buchanan broke her nose with his open hand. Then there were bloody towels upon the bathroom floor, and women's voices scolding. And high over the confusion, a long, broken wail of pain. Then Mr. McKee turned and moved on out the door. Taking my hat from the chandelier, I followed. I believe that on the first night I went to Gatsby's house, I was one of the few guests who had actually been invited. People were not invited. They went there 
dressed up in white flannels. I went over to his lawn a little after seven and was on my way to get roaring drunk when Jordan Baker came over. I thought you might be here, she said. Let's find our host. The bar was crowded, but Gatsby was not there. She couldn't find him from the top of the steps, and he wasn't on the veranda. The high Gothic library, paneled with carved English oak, contained only a stout, owl-eyed man, anxious to express his amazement that the books were not jam cardboard. There was dancing on the canvas in the garden. A celebrated tenor had sung in Italian, while happy, vacuous bursts of laughter rose toward the summer sky. A pair of stage twins did a baby act in costume, and champagne was served in glasses bigger than finger bowls. I was enjoying myself. At a lull in the entertainment, a man looked at me and smiled. Your face is familiar, he said politely. Weren't you in the third division during the war? Why, yes, I replied. This is an unusual party for me. I haven't even seen the host. I'm Gatsby, he said. He smiled much more than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four or five times in life. It understood you just so far as you wanted to be understood believed in you as you would like to believe in yourself and precisely at that point it vanished and I was looking at an elegant young roughneck a year or two over thirty whose elaborate formality of speech just missed being absurd almost at the moment Mr. Gatsby excused himself with a small bow and I turned to Jordan who is he? I demanded. Well, he told me once he was an Oxford man. Anyhow, he gives large parties, said Jordan. And I like large parties. There was the boom of a bass drum, and the voice of the orchestra leader rang out suddenly above the garden. Ladies and gentlemen, he cried, at the request of Mr. Gatsby, Vladimir Tostov's Jazz History of the World. Gatsby's butler was suddenly standing beside us. Miss Baker, he inquired, I beg your pardon, but Mr. Gatsby would like to speak to you alone. With me? She got up slowly, raising her eyebrows at me in astonishment, and followed the butler toward the house. I looked around, most of the remaining women were now having fights with men, said to be their husbands. Time to leave. As I waited for my hat in the hall, the door of the library opened, and Jordan Baker and Gatsby came out together. I just heard the most amazing thing, she whispered, but I swore I wouldn't tell it, and here I am tantalizing you. She yawned gracefully in my face. Please come and see me. Her brown hand waved a jaunty salute as she melted into her party at the door. But all these were merely casual events in a crowded summer. Most of the time I worked down the wide chasms of Lower New York at the Probity Trust. I knew the other clerks and young bond salesmen by the first names. And I even had a short affair with a girl who lived in Jersey City. I lost sight of Jordan Baker. And then, in midsummer, I found her again. We were on a house party together up in Warwick. She left a borrowed car out in the rain with the top down, and then lied about it. And suddenly I remembered the story about her. That, at her first big golf tournament, there was a suggestion that she had moved her ball from a bad lie. 
Jordan Baker was incurably dishonest. For a moment, I thought I loved her. Everyone suspects himself of at least one of the cardinal virtues, and this is mine. I am one of the few honest people that I have ever known. Gatsby's a bootlegger, said the young ladies, moving somewhere between his cocktails and his flowers. One time he killed a man. Once I wrote down on the empty spaces of a timetable the names of those who came to Gatsby's house that summer. Gulick, the state senator, and James B. Rotgut Ferret came to gamble. Clipspringer was there so long that he became known as the border. There were theatrical people and business people and Henry L. Palmetto and Benny McClanahan who arrived always with four girls and a prince of something whom we called the Duke and whose name, if I ever knew it, I have forgotten. At nine o'clock one morning, late in July, Gatsby's gorgeous cream-colored car, bright with nickel, swollen here and there in its monstrous length with triumphant hat-boxes and toolboxes, and terraced with a labyrinth of windshields that mirrored a dozen suns, lurched up to my door and gave out a burst of melody from its three-nonet horn. Good morning, old sport. You're having lunch with me today, and I thought we'd ride up together. Sitting down behind many layers of glass in a sort of green leather conservatory, we started that disconcerting ride to town. Look here, old sport, he broke out surprisingly. I'm going to tell you something about my life. I don't want you to get a wrong idea of me. He told me about his education, about how his parents had died and left him money, how he'd been decorated for his bravery in the war. In case I might harbor any foolish doubts, he produced a Montenegrin war medal and a photograph of himself in Trinity Quad. Then it was all true. I thought you ought to know something about me. He hesitated. Miss Baker has kindly consented to speak to you about this matter. I hadn't the faintest idea what this matter was, but I was more annoyed than interested. We passed Port Roosevelt, then the Valley of Ashes. Gatsby dismissed a motorcycle policeman with a wave of some white card. And then... In a well-fanned 42nd Street cellar, I joined Gatsby for lunch. Mr. Carraway, this is my friend Mr. Wolfsheim. This is a nice restaurant here, said Mr. Wolfsheim, looking at the Presbyterian nymphs on the ceiling. But I like the old Metropole across the street better. I can't forget so long as I live the night they shot Rosie Rosenthal there. His luxuriously haired nostrils turned to me in an interested way. I understand you're looking for a business connection. Gatsby answered for me. Oh no, he exclaimed. This isn't the man. This is just a friend. A succulent hash arrived, and Mr. Wolfsheim began to eat with a ferocious delicacy. Gatsby suddenly looked at his watch jumped up and hurried from the room, leaving me with Mr. Wolfsheim at the table. He has a telephone, said Mr. Wolfsheim. Fine fellow, isn't he? He went to Oxford College in England. It is one of the most famous colleges in the world. Have you known Gatsby for a long time? I inquired. Several years. Mr. Wolfsheim drank his coffee with a jerk and got to his feet. I've enjoyed my lunch, he said, and I'm going to run off from you two young men before I outstay my welcome. As he shook hands and turned away, his tragic nose was trembling. He becomes very sentimental sometimes, explained Gatsby. 
He's quite a character around New York. He's the man who fixed the World Series back in 1919. Fixed the World Series? I repeated. Why isn't he in jail? <laughs> They can't get him, old sport. He's a smart man. Jordan Maker, sitting up very straight in the tea garden at the Plaza Hotel, told me of how Daisy had met a lieutenant called Jay Gatsby, but married Tom Buchanan of Chicago. It's a strange coincidence, I said. But it wasn't a coincidence at all. Gatsby bought that house so that Daisy would be just across the bay. He wants to know, continued Jordan. If you'll invite Daisy to your house some afternoon and then let him come over. The modesty of the demand shook me. He had waited five years and bought a mansion where he dispensed starlight to casual moths so that he could come over some afternoon to a stranger's garden. She's not to know about it. Gatsby doesn't want her to know. You're just supposed to invite her to tea. I drew her up beside me, tightening my arms. Her scornful mouth smiled, and so I drew her up again, closer this time to my face. When I came home that night, I found Gatsby's house, lit like a fire from tower to cellar. As my taxi groaned away, I saw Gatsby walking toward me across his lawn. I talked with Miss Baker, I said after a moment. I'm going to call up Daisy tomorrow and invite her over here to tea. Oh, that's all right, he said carelessly. He fumbled with a series of beginnings. Why, I thought, why, look here, old sport. You don't make much money, do you? I thought if... You see, I carry on a little business on the side, you understand, and I thought you wouldn't have to do any business with Wolfsheim. I've got my hands full, I said. And he went unwillingly home. I called up Daisy from the office the next morning and invited her to come to tea. Don't bring Tom, I warned her. So the meeting happened at my place. We haven't met for many years, said Daisy, her voice as matter of fact as it could ever be. Five years next November, said a nervous Gatsby. I want you to come over to my house, he said. I'd like to show you around. That huge place there, she cried, pointing. Do you like it? I love it, but I don't see how you can live there all alone. I keep it always full of interesting people, night and day. People who do interesting things. Celebrated people. If it wasn't for the mist, we could see your home across the bay, said Gatsby. You always have a green light that burns all night at the end of your dock. In his own house, Gatsby turned on this solitary lamp beside the piano. He lit Daisy's cigarette from a trembling match and sat down with her on the couch far across the room where there was no light save what the gleaming floor bounced in from the hall. Gatsby found someone, Clipspringer, to play the piano. As I went over to say goodbye, I saw that the expression of bewilderment had come back into Gatsby's face. Almost five years. There must have been moments, even that afternoon, when Daisy tumbled short of his dreams. Not through her own fault, but because of the colossal vitality of his illusion. It had gone beyond her. Beyond everything. No amount of fire or freshness can challenge what a man will store up in his ghostly heart. About this time, 
an ambitious young reporter from New York, arrived one morning at Gatsby's door and asked him if he had anything to say. Anything to say about what? inquired Gatsby politely. It transpired that the man had heard Gatsby's name around his office in a connection which he either wouldn't reveal or didn't fully understand. It was a random shot, and yet the reporter's instinct was right. Gatsby's notoriety had increased all summer, until he fell just short of being news. In reality, he was James Gatz. That was really, or at least legally, his name. Son of shiftless and unsuccessful farm people, had chanced upon the silver tycoon, Dan Cody's yacht, on Lake Superior and helped him out of a storm's way. Cody employed Gatsby in a vague personal capacity and it was from Cody that he inherited money, a legacy of $25,000. He told me all this very much later and he told me too about the autumn night five years before when Daisy's face first came up to his own. He knew that when he kissed this girl, his mind would never romp again. He said that Daisy comes over quite often in the afternoons and asked if I would come to lunch at her house tomorrow and that Miss Baker would be there. I remember I went I remember we had beer, and we all took the inexplicable step of driving over to the city in the two cars, and engaging the parlor of a suite in the Plaza Hotel. The prolonged and tumultuous argument that ended by herding us into that room eludes me, though. Open the whiskey, Tom, Daisy ordered, and I'll make you a mint julep then you won't seem so stupid to yourself. Wait a minute, snapped Tom. I want to ask Mr. Gatsby one question. They were out in the open at last, and Gatsby was content. Daisy looked desperately from one to the other. Your wife doesn't love you, said Gatsby. She's never loved you. She loves me. Daisy turned to me, and her voice, dropping an octave lower, filled the room with thrilling scorn. Do you know why we left Chicago? I'm surprised that they didn't treat you to the story of that little spree. Daisy, that's all over now, Tom said earnestly. It doesn't matter anymore. Just tell him the truth, that you never loved him and it's all wiped out forever. The words seemed to bite physically into Gatsby. Daisy's leaving you. Nonsense. I am, though, she said with a visible effort. Please, Tom, I can't stand this anymore. You two start on home, Daisy, said Tom, in Mr. Gatsby's car. She looked at Tom, alarmed now, but he insisted with magnanimous scorn. Go on, he won't annoy you. I think he realizes that his presumptuous little flirtation is over. They were gone, without a word. Snapped out, made accidental, isolated, like ghosts even from our pity. After a moment, Tom got up and began wrapping the unopened bottle of whiskey in the towel. Want any of this stuff? Jordan? Nick? No, I just remembered that today is my birthday. I was 30. Before me stretched the portentous, menacing road of a new decade. It was 7 o'clock when we got into the coop with him and started for Long Island. So we drove on toward death through the cooling twilight. The young Greek, Michaelis, 
who ran the coffee joint beside the ash heaps, was a principal witness at the inquest. He had strolled over to the garage and found George Wilson sick in his office. Really sick, and a violent racket going on overhead. I've got my wife locked up in there, explained Wilson calmly. She's going to stay there till the day after tomorrow, and then we're going to move away. Michaelis was astonished, and tried to find out what had happened. When he came outside again a little after seven, he heard Mrs. Wilson's voice, loud and scolding, downstairs in the garage. Beat me, he heard her cry. You coward. A moment later, she rushed out into the dusk, waving her hands and shouting, before he could move from his door. The business was over. The death car, as the newspapers called it, didn't stop. It came out of the gathering darkness, wavered tragically for a moment, and then disappeared around the next bend. The other car, the one going toward New York, came to rest a hundred yards beyond, and his driver hurried back to where Myrtle Wilson, her life violently extinguished, knelt in the road. Michaelis and this man reached her first, but upon trying to save her, they could tell there was no need to listen for the heart beneath. We saw three or four automobiles in the crowd when we were still some distance away. Rex, said Tom. That's good. Wilson will have a little business at last. We'll just take a look. Then Tom saw Myrtle's body in the road. What happened? That's what I want to know. She ran out in a road. Mandy must stop the car. A pale, well-dressed man stepped near. It was a yellow car, he said. Big yellow car. New. Tom helped Wilson into the office, and we drove slowly away until we were beyond the bend. Then his foot came down hard, and the coupe raced along through the night. In a little while, I heard a low, husky sob, and saw that the tears were overflowing down his face. The coward, he whimpered. He'd even stop his car. At the Buchanan's house, I declined their offer to come inside and walked slowly down the drive intending to wait by the gate for a taxi. I hadn't gone twenty yards when I heard my name, and Gatsby stepped from between two bushes into the path. Did you see any trouble on the road? He asked. Yes. He hesitated. Was she killed? Yes. I thought so. I told Daisy I thought so. It's better that the shock should all come at once. She stood it pretty well. He spoke as if Daisy's reaction was the only thing that mattered. Who was the woman? He inquired. Her name was Wilson. Her husband owns the garage. How the devil did it happen? Well, I tried to swing the wheel. He broke off, and suddenly I guessed at the truth. Was Daisy driving? Yes, he said after a moment. But of course I'll say I was. You'd better come home and get some sleep. He shook his head. I want to wait here till Daisy goes to bed. Good night, old sport. He put his hands in his coat pockets and turned back eagerly to his scrutiny of the house 
as though my presence marred the sacredness of the vigil. So I walked away and left him standing there in the moonlight, watching over nothing. I couldn't sleep all night. A foghorn was groaning incessantly on the sound. Toward dawn, I crossed the lawn to find Gatsby leaning against a table in the hall, heavy with dejection or sleep. You ought to go away, I said. It's pretty certain they'll trace your car. He wouldn't consider it. He couldn't possibly leave Daisy until he knew what she was going to do. He was clutching at some last hope, and I couldn't bear to shake him free. Of course, she might have loved him, just for a minute, when they were first married, and loved me more even then, do you see? In any case, it was just personal. I'll call you up, I said finally. I suppose Daisy will call too. He looked at me anxiously. I suppose so. We shook hands and I started away. They're a rotten crowd, I shouted across the lawn. You're worth a whole bunch of them put together. I've always been glad I said that. It was the only compliment I ever gave him, because I disapproved of him from beginning to end. I want to go back a little and tell what happened at the garage the night before. Until long after midnight, a changing crowd lapped up against the front of the garage, while George Wilson walked himself back and forth on the couch inside. He announced that he had a way of finding out whom the yellow card belonged to, and then he blurted out that a couple months ago his wife had come from the city, with her face bruised and her nose swollen. She had bought a dog leash. He knew it was something funny. He murdered her. It was an accident, George. You may fool me, he muttered after a long silence. But you can't fool God. At two o'clock, Gatsby gave instructions that the open car wasn't to be taken out under any circumstances. And this was strange because the front right fender needed repair. He shouldered a pneumatic mattress and started for the pool. The chauffeur, he was one of Wolfsheim's prodigies, heard the shots. I drove from the station directly to Gatsby's house, and four of us, the chauffeur, butler, Gardener and I hurried down to the pool. There was a faint, barely perceptible movement of the water as a laden mattress revolved slowly, tracing, like the leg of a compass, a thin red circle in the water. It was after we started with Gatsby toward the house that the gardener saw Wilson's body a little way off in the grass and the holocaust was complete after two years I remember the rest of that day only as an endless drill of police and photographers and newspaper men in and out of Gatsby's front door I called up Daisy half an hour after we found him, but she and Tom had gone away early that afternoon and left no address. When the phone rang at Gatsby's that afternoon, it was a man's voice, very thin and far away. This is Lego speaking. Get my wire. Young Park's in trouble, he said rapidly. They picked him up when he handed the bonds over the counter. Hello, I interrupted breathlessly. Look here, this isn't... Mr. Gatsby. Mr. Gatsby's dead. 
There was a long silence. Then a quick squawk as the connection was broken. I think it was on the third day, the morning of the funeral, that Henry C. Gatz arrived from a town in Minnesota. Gatsby's father was a solemn old man, very helpless and dismayed, bundled up in a long, cheap ulster against a warm September day. I saw it in the Chicago newspaper, he said. I didn't know how to reach you, I said. I spent my Saturday nights in New York because those gleaming, dazzling parties of his were with me so vividly that I could still hear the music and the laughter faint and incessant from his garden and the cars going up and down his drive. One night, I did hear a material car stop at his front steps, probably some final guest that didn't know the party was over. On the last night, with my trunk packed, I wandered down to the beach and sprawled out on the sand. And as I sat there brooding on the old, unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him. Gatsby believed in the green light, the organic future that year by year recedes before us. It eludes us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther. So we beat on, boats against the current, Going back ceaselessly into the past.